Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Innovation in Myeloma, a weekly internet interview series to help connect patients with myeloma researchers. I'm Jenny Alstrom and will be hosting today's show. I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Guido Trico, the Director of the Bone Marrow Transplant Program at the Holden Cancer Center at the University of Iowa. Dr. Trico was educated in Belgium and has served as the Director of the Bone Marrow Transplant and Myeloma Program for the Huntsman Cancer Center Institute, the Greenbaum Cancer Center at the University of Maryland and at Indiana University. He was also the Director of Clinical Research at the University of Arkansas Myeloma Institute for Research and Therapy. Dr. Trico has been treating myeloma patients for over 20 years. Now, because I lived out of the country at the time I was diagnosed, it offered several logistical challenges for a myeloma treatment. So I went to multiple facilities over the three-year period. I had the privilege of getting treated by Dr. Trico while he was at Huntsman Cancer. And what I liked the most about him besides overall great care is his very kind attention to detail for his patients. I always knew that I was getting the most attentive care and that nothing was ever missed. Every lab result, every myeloma marker, everything was reviewed carefully. He strikes a great balance between attention to detail and very personal and kind interaction. So thank you, Dr. Trico, for joining us. Are you there? Dr. Trico, can you... Oh, just a minute. Oh, sorry. Okay. Are you there? Yes. Thank okay. you very much for your kind introduction. Oh, well, I have several questions for you. Um, part of your attention to detail means looking at the diagnostic process for myeloma, whether you're newly diagnosed or you're relapsed. So first, can you share with us the importance of getting the right diagnostic testing so that we know we know what we're dealing with as we choose a treatment path? And sometimes we have to make that decision really quickly and immediately if we have active myeloma. Well, when I treat patients with myeloma, I compare this to war. And I want to know as much as possible about the enemy as uh, as I can. And by doing more tests, you will know more and more about the enemy, and you will have less likely surprises on the way. If you know a little bit about your enemy, but not enough, the probability that you will have uh, surprises on the way will be much, much higher. So I like to know as much as possible, and I like to take as little risk as possible. I also want to make sure that I do all the tests so that I can see whether patients are really benefiting from the treatment, that I don't have to wait forever to see whether they live long or not, that I can see early on whether they are doing the way they're supposed to do and whether they're responding appropriately to treatment and whether I have to adjust my treatment. And what do you look at the most when you look at the when you're trying to determine that if they're responding well or not? Um, there are two important tests in the beginning that I pay a lot of attention to. One has to do with genetics, and the other has to do with imaging. And the genetics uh, will give us very quickly an idea whether patients are likely to do well with the treatment or whether they are high-risk patients. Luckily, with the newer techniques, only 17% of the patients are high-risk patients and 83% are low-risk patients and will do very well with our treatments. But even in the high-risk patients, 
the in more intensive treatments will be still way superior to uh, less intensive treatments. In terms of uh, trying to find out how uh, well patients are responding to treatment, there the imaging studies become more important. In the beginning, we rely heavily on the PET-CT scans to show that patients are responding well to treatment. But once patients are in a complete remission, we want to see that all the lesions that patients set on their MRI slowly but surely are disappearing. While the PET scan normalizes typically very quickly after transplantation, MRI takes about a year and sometimes more than two years to completely normalize. But when the MRI normalizes, you know that the patient is in a very solid, complete remission and that most likely the remission will last for a long, long time. Hmm, I did not know that. That's great. Okay, now part of my diagnosis included a gene array test, which I know is fairly new. Um, I wanted to talk about this because many patients may not know about this test. I was I attended um, a patient seminar and kind of asked this of a group of about 100 patients, and about 10% of them raised their hands that they had completed this test. Can you tell us what this test is and why it's important? Well, we always have known that genetic information of the myeloma cells was important. And initially, we did that with regular metaphase cytogenetics and then with FISH uh, analysis. But those tests are very rough and imprecise tests that show that there is a lot of damage done to the DNA of the cancer cells. In contrast, uh, if you do a gene expression profile, you can look at 35,000 genes with one single test. And now you can really focus on the genes, not on large structures that may be normal or abnormal, but specific genes that can be upregulated or downregulated and correlate very well with outcome. And based on those gene arrays, we now know who is likely to do well and who is likely not to do well. And especially, we know very well who is likely to do not so well. We will need to have longer follow-up since we only started that in 2003 and we were the first center to do that. Uh, so we don't even have a 10-year follow-up uh, of those gene arrays. But after about 10 to 15 years, we should be able to identify also patients who are going to do extremely well with treatments and where we can think about decreasing the intensity of the treatment. If we can identify groups that are still in complete remission 10 to 12 years after uh, having started their treatment, then uh, with 90% certainty, then we can uh, start to see whether some of the patients actually can do with less treatment and we can start to individualize treatment according to their gene expression profiles. Okay, now I've heard a lot about this gene expression test um, growing in importance for clinical trials so that you can personalize care. Um, can you just comment on how this, how a little more about how this will be used in determining who gets which, which kind of treatment? Well, if you have a high-risk profile, it's extremely important that you get all your treatments on time. You cannot allow patients to have big gaps in between treatments because the disease will already start to uh, recover again. 
And you cannot allow that. So in high-risk patients, it's extremely important to give all the treatments in time. In patients who have a low-risk disease, the most important thing is to make sure that you don't kill the patients by giving the treatments too quickly. You need to make sure that there's adequate recovery in between the treatments so that they have little risk with the treatments. With the high-risk patients, you, you cannot afford to wait that long. So it gives us an indication on how strictly we need to adhere to the protocol and how quickly we need to give all the treatments. But our hope is that in another two to three years, we will be able to identify patients who have a 90% plus probability of staying in remission for more than 10 years, and that in those patients, we can start to see whether we can decrease the intensity of the treatment. Okay, so if I am a patient and I want to get this test, how do I go about getting it? There are a few institutions doing that, just, uh, such as in uh, Little Rock and in uh, Iowa. And uh, there is also a commercial company who is now trying to get this done. Uh, and more institutions are now trying to work with that company to have the gene array done. We will have to see how reliable their results are compared to what we do because all those samples have to be sent out and uh, handled after being sent out. But I think it's, overall it, it will be a, a progress that more and more patients will have access to the gene expression profiling. And it will also help us in uh, determining the studies. When you look at study outcome, the one variable that you have very little knowledge about is are we really comparing here apples to apples? Do we have the same amount of high-risk patients as in another study, or are the better results that we see in one study only due to the fact that that study had by accident many more good prognosis patients than bad prognosis patients? Mm -hmm. And the more you know and the more tests you do, if you do your, M your MRI and your PET scan and your gene array and the fish analysis and the cytogenetics, the more likely it's that you can really compare apples to apples and see which treatment is superior. Okay, and do you know if um, insurance will pay for this test? If I were uh, to request it as a patient? When it's done in Little Rock or it's done by us, uh, the patients have this for free. But with the company, the, the commercial company that does it, they basically take care of the insurance issues. They will make sure that uh, either uh, they are paid by the insurance company or if the insurance company, for one reason or another, refuses to pay, they will do the test for free. Oh, okay. And... Um if I relapse, is it important to get this again? Or or if I've had it once, am I okay? No, it, it's very important to do this uh, at relapse too. But in general, the longer it takes for patients to relapse, the more likely it is that their gene array will be very similar to what they had initially, while patients who relapse very quickly after uh, treatment usually have a completely different uh, gene expression profile, a much more aggressive uh, gene expression profile. And why is that? 
if a patient can stay in remission for 10 years and after 10 years relapses, that means that the treatment was very effective, but not ex not effective to a way that it eradicated everything, but that you basically got down to very, very, very low levels of uh, disease. And it takes a long while for those cells then to grow up and to cause the disease to relapse again. And usually, if you give the similar treatments as you gave initially, you have same uh, results as the initial treatments or very close to the same results. And those patients in general do well. While if patients relapse very quickly after, uh, uh, for example, two transplants, we know that those uh, patients had a subset of myeloma cells that was extremely aggressive and in spite of the intensive treatments grew through the treatments. And those patients typically don't do well with uh, the same type of treatment. Those are typically candidates for experimental treatments. Hmm. Okay, now that kind of leads us into talking about clinical trials. Um, I know that in myeloma, I think it's about between 3 and 5% of patients who are participating in clinical trials. So you have research kind of progressing at this steady pace, but a slower pace than most patients would like. And if you, I've talked to someone in um, childhood cancers where they say maybe 85% of patients are in clinical trials because patient, parents are, you know, taking their children to different research facilities and really pushing forward in these trials. Um, and because of it, they've been able to cure some of these diseases like childhood leukemias or have been able to have really good progress in their research. So how... Do you feel that more progress could be made at a faster pace in myeloma if we increased the enrollment in clinical trials? Um, it would certainly be very beneficial if we can have more patients to participate in clinical trials. But many patients these days are treated for myeloma by their local oncologists, totally off trial, and they come to us only after they have failed all the typical treatments and are in much worse condition at that point in time and no longer candidates for our upfront trials to see whether we can cure this disease. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference between adult trials and, and uh, uh, trials in children is usually the fact, uh, related to the fact that each of those pediatric centers sees a few of those patients a year and they don't have the population to really do trials all by themselves. And the only way that they can get to some good data is by all working together and all participating in the trial. In adults, we usually have more patients uh, with a certain disease, and it's easier for us to do the trials by ourselves. The problem with multi-institutional trials is that you have to compromise. Not everybody thinks the same way, and some people are less aggressive and other people are more aggressive and you will have to compromise to some degree. And sometimes those compromises can be acceptable. Sometimes you think this is a compromise that I cannot accept that I don't think is beneficial to my patients. Mm -hmm. so you need to make sure that you can do trials with institutions that have a similar mindset and have similar goals. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult. Mm-hmm. As you know, in, in myeloma, um, there is this major difference in opinion between different groups where some people think that myeloma is an absolutely incurable disease and therefore it should never be treated aggressively, while 
other people think, just like we do, that this disease can be cured, and therefore that you have the that it's beneficial for the patients to be treated as aggressively as possible. And with our tri- the last trial that we did in Arkansas, uh, that I participated in, uh, Total Therapy 3, which has now uh, a median follow-up of, of almost nine years, uh, we saw that uh, at five years, patients who achieved a complete remission, that only 11% of those patients had relapsed and 89% of those patients were still in complete remission. That Hmm. is excellent data. And also in the uh, total therapy 2 arm, where where patients were randomized between two transplants with thalidomide or without thalidomide, that in the thalidomide arm, patients who achieved a complete remission, that uh, 60% of those patients were still in complete remission at 10 years. So if you can keep uh, 60% of your patients in complete remission at 10 years, it's hard to imagine that this is not a curable disease. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think we are justified in trying to aim for cure, even if we take a little more risk up front by giving our more intensive treatments. Mm-hmm. So if you look on clinicaltrials.gov and you see the over 540 open myeloma trials, and there are, you know, various standard protocols depending on um, opinion that that may not be in a clinical trial. How does a patient, what would you suggest to a patient in weighing any costs or benefits in joining a clinical trial? So do we as patients get a standard treatment when we're newly diagnosed, or do we wait to join a clinical trial if we relapse? Do we search one out when we're newly di- diagnosed? I, it's It's such a confusing time when you're kind of given this diagnosis that you're not um you know you're just trying to stay alive so so what are your thoughts on this and how what do you recommend to patients when they have those decisions to make well in multiple myeloma just like in any form of cancer you only have one shot at cure and that's in the beginning once the disease comes back you can make people live still a few more years and sometimes four, five, ten years, but you cannot cure them. They ultimately will die of their disease. So if you want to have the a shot at cure, it behooves you to be as aggressive as possible in the very beginning, not when people have relapsed. If people have relapsed, the chances of cure are basically minimal, and uh, you have these very intensive treatments that are going to result in inferior results compared if you would do the same thing up front when the disease is still naive and when the myeloma mm-hmm. cells have no idea uh, what's coming to them. And at this point in time, the thing that works the best for us is first trying to debulk uh, the tumor, trying to get as much tumor cells killed as possible with tandem transplants, and when that's done, then to introduce the newer drugs such as Felcate, Thalidomide, Revlimid, uh, to take care of the little bit of remaining disease. And that has worked better than uh, trying to start with uh, treatments such as Felcate or Thalidomide or Revlimid up front, where you expose those drugs, which are relatively weak, to a large amount of tumor cells, and where you always will find cells that are escaping the, the drugs and you make them resistant up front. 
Uh, so you first try to give you heavy weapons to get down to as low a level as possible, and then you come in with your somewhat weaker weapons. Hmm. Okay. Can you please share with us um, your current research and what you're working on? Um, in terms of clinical trials, we try to go to transplantation as quickly as possible. We only give one single induction cycle, and that cycle mainly is meant to collect as many stem cells as possible so that we can do the transplants as safely as possible. If we would not have to collect stem cells, we would immediately go to transplantation because that's the most effective treatment. But after that one cycle, once we have collected our stem cells and we have a good amount of stem cells, then we start immediately with our first transplant and then with our second transplant. And once patients have gone through the second transplant, then we start with maintenance therapy for two years uh, with the newer drugs. And the newer drugs certainly have made outcome of myeloma patients a lot better, especially if given after transplantation. Okay. And then the the open clinical trials, are they solely focused around the tandem transplants? Are they adding in the new new drugs or therapies, or can you kind of describe what they are? Um, there are, uh, in, in our center, we uh, focus mainly on the tandem transplants, except for patients mm-hmm over the age of 65, most of mm-hmm. those patients are covered by Medicare. And in mm-hmm. that, we give a single transplant with two years of maintenance therapy, and we are trying to see whether those patients do better than what's uh, described in the literature with non-transplant modalities. As you know, there are still many people who think that anybody over 65, by definition, is no longer a candidate for transplantation. But people over 65 these days do a lot better than they did 20 and 30 years ago. Most of those patients are still in excellent condition. A patient who is 70 years old has another life expectancy of 18 years, and they want mm-hmm. to get as many of 18 years as possible and be treated aggressively, even if mm-hmm. that means uh, more toxicity up front, if ultimately they can get more years out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know and, that... Uh-huh. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I know that on the um, I know if you look at seer.cancer.gov, you can see these kind of average life expectancy um, approaches. And I know that a patient, um, Gary Peterson, kind of went to multiple facilities. I know he wasn't able to get um, from from some facilities, but some outcome data that he posts on his myelomasurvival.com website, and um, I think. I think for patients, it's helpful to see outcome data. So I don't know if you have any other recommendations about how patients can kind of, I guess, analyze the data for themselves and make educated decisions about their care when they are um, when they have to make a decision. The most important thing that patients need to realize is that it is not a matter of convenience. It's not a matter of can I get my treatment close to home or not. It's a matter of survival. Uh, you need to try to get a treatment that gives you the highest chance of surviving uh, with good quality of life as long as possible. And unfortunately, there's nothing more inconvenient than dying way too early because you didn't get the optimal treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's important that patients go to centers that are specialized in this disease. 
just like a, a car mechanic who repairs 500 cars a year knows better what to do than a mechanic who repairs two or three cars a year. Uh, doctors who treat uh, who treat only myeloma and specialize in that will have a better feel for how to best help patients with myeloma. And it's important that the patients try to find out how many patients with myeloma are seen in that center. And the second most important thing is that they find out what the results are of that center. How many of their patients are still alive at 5, 7, and 10 years? Not at 1 and 2 years. It's easy to make a myeloma patient live for a year or 2 years. It's much more difficult to make myeloma patients live for 5, 7, and 10 years. That is really what you need to know. And and if a patient just asks, um, should they be able to provide the data? I mean, I've, yeah. If they don't just... provide data, it means that they don't analyze their data and that they basically have no clue what what's happening to their patients. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. many transplants are done by physicians who transplant multiple different diseases. And as soon as they, the transplant is done, they are sent back to their doctors and the transplant physicians have no idea what's happening long time to their patients. Hmm. And they think they do well, but they actually don't know. When we see a new patient with myeloma, we follow those patients all the way through. We know exactly how many of our patients are alive at 5, at 7, and at 10 years. Well, that's great. Um, can you share more information about your myeloma practice at the University of Iowa, your team? Um, I came to the University of Iowa about uh, a year and a half ago, and the first year I saw about 120 new myeloma patients uh, at Iowa, and this year probably around 150. And that's a good number of patients to see. On the one hand, you want to make sure that you see enough of them so that you can do the appropriate studies. But on the other hand, you need to make sure that all the patients you commit to, you can treat optimally, that you don't go for large numbers at the expense of quality. You need to find a, a balance between, on the one hand, being able to see enough patients, on the other hand, being able to still deliver the best uh, possible quality of care. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are trying to do at uh, Iowa. Uh, we also have an, a very active research going on that is directed towards uh, myeloma stem cells. And Can you I share a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, we used to think that every cancer cell was the same and had the same uh, possibility of uh, causing the cancer to come back. Now we know that there are two different sets of myeloma cells. There are the large majority of the cells are what we call more mature myeloma cells, and those cells cannot cause the disease to come back. While there's a small fraction of cells, usually less than 1% of the cells, which we call myeloma stem cells, which have the capacity to, uh, to have the disease come back if you don't eradicate them. And most of the treatments, especially the newer treatments, such as Velcate and Tolidomide and Revlimid, have good effect on the more mature cells, but do not have any effect on the myeloma stem cells. And if you cannot eradicate the myeloma stem cells, 
you cannot cure this disease. And at this point in time, the only treatment that is effective in eradicating the stem cells are the treatments that can cause such a severe bone marrow suppression that you need stem cells to rescue the patients from this severe uh, bone marrow suppression. And those are drugs like hydrosmolfalan, hydrosbusulfan, or hydrosbcnu. If you cannot eradicate the hematopoietic cells uh, with your drugs, you cannot eradicate stem cells in myeloma. Uh, but in addition to that, we still need to find better ways to eradicate myeloma stem cells that have survived tandem transplants. And that's what we are focusing on. And uh, within the next year, we'll start a trial focusing on patients who have their disease relapsing and need another transplant to see if we give the maintenance therapy with drugs that specifically target those myeloma stem cells, whether we can lengthen their uh, uh, duration of their remission after the salvage transplant. Well, if the myeloma stem cells are still remaining, how do you determine that? What test shows that? Um, that is a, a very good question, and it has taken us about two years to find out what what the best test is to measure the quantity of myeloma stem cells, and we do that in the peripheral blood, and we have now a good test to find out how many of those stem cells are there and how effectively they are eradicated with the transplants. And that's what uh, we have now submitted another uh, grant to the NIH to see whether we can use this test to predict who will do well and will not do well after transplantation. Hmm. Great. Can you tell us um, about a little bit about immunotherapies? There seems to be kind of a hot topic in myeloma. Yeah. So can you share with us uh, yeah, what you know about immunotherapies? Yeah, there are two forms of immunotherapy. One is with monoclonal antibodies, and the other one is with uh, infusing cells that can kill specifically the, the myeloma cells in this case. But it's the same for leukemia cells too. Um, monoclonal antibodies in myeloma have been difficult to get to. Uh, in contrast to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, where we have the CD20 monoclonal antibody, which has been extremely effective in uh, in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, especially if combined with chemotherapy, we don't have anything yet in myeloma that is equally effective. But in the last five years, there have been at least five or six monoclonal antibodies developed, and they are now all in different stages in, in, the first, in uh, phase one or phase two trials. And I'm pretty confident that within the next few years, we will have monoclonal antibodies, which will help patients with myeloma. And again, they will not be given in a way that they replace transplantation or the newer drugs, but they will be given in a way that they complement the treatments we give at this point in time so that we see better and more durable responses. The other part is uh, you can educate your T cells to specifically kill myeloma cells. Unfortunately, in myeloma, the T cells are of such poor function that it's very difficult to educate myeloma T cells. And in the last five years, we have more focused on another uh, type of cell that doesn't need education that can still kill myeloma cells, which we call NK cells, natural killer cells. 
and that work is ongoing, and we need to see how effective those uh, treatments are. Okay, so when you say that immunotherapies um, may be used with the transplantation, would they also be used with existing drugs like the Velcade, Revlimid, Thalidomide, those Absolutely. types of drugs? If we, have mon- yeah, if we have good monoclonal antibodies, they should make any type of therapy more effective. So it's like adding another tool to the yeah. arsenal. Because those monoclonal antibodies, bodies, they work differently than uh, the other drugs we use. Uh, the, the other drugs we use, the cells can find a way to become resistant to those. The monoclonal antibodies, it's, it's much more difficult. They don't care about how much damage is done to the DNA and how uh, the, whether there are new mutations in the cells or not. They just see whether there is a certain marker on the surface of those cells, and if that's present, they will be killed. And so hmm. it works in a different way, and therefore should be very synergistic and uh, add to the effect of any type of treatment if we can find the right monoclonal antibodies. And is that something that's coming immediately, something that's coming six months out, a year out? How? What do you um, think the development will look like? probably be another two years before those studies will be starting mm-hmm. in, in, in combination studies. Eh? At this point in time, the studies that are being done are with monoclonal antibodies only. Mm-hmm. And one of the difficulties we have these days is that there are so many different treatments for myeloma that the newer treatments are being given to patients later and later and later in their disease when their disease is more and more resistant. And there are six, seven different ways that we can treat patients with myeloma, and they have to have failed everything before we can uh, give those monoclonal antibodies. And once the, the cells are extremely resistant, it becomes more difficult to see whether they are really effective. As with everything, uh, when you give it up front, this will be much more effective than if you give it when people have failed seven, eight other types of treatment. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you so much for explaining that. So um, my background is in technology, where there are kind of different kinds of innovation. You, there's incremental innovation that's making something incrementally better, service innovation, like distribution channel innovation. And then um, in technology, they talk about it as disruptive innovation, which is something completely new and that solves an old problem. So I guess in myeloma, you would call disruptive innovation a cure um, or defining a cure or finding the cure. Um, So where do you see this, where would you see this disruptive kind of innovation or cure coming from in the world of myeloma beyond the patients that you're seeing have 10 or 20 years worth of remission at this point? Um, I hope, and that's why we have our research on that, that a disruption will come from targeting the myeloma stem cells. And that Mm -hmm. if we can deal with those cells effectively, that we will really have a good chance at curing more than half of the patients with myeloma, Um, and hopefully more than as close to 100% as possible. Uh, But uh, disruptive innovations are usually a total departure from what has been done in the past and is based on a totally new concept and a new idea. 
and uh, most of the trials going on only are minimal cha- minimal changes from what has been done before, and the minimal changes usually don't result in major changes in outcome. Mm-hmm. It's something that departs totally from what has been done in the past that has the most likelihood, but it's also the highest risk, but the most likelihood of being totally new and innovative, and like introducing stem cell transplantation, as was done by Dr. Barlogi in the late 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, total departure from what was, was done before, where everybody thought that myeloma patients should be treated as gently as possible, since there was no cure possible, and most of the patients were older, and if you were going to give something more aggressive, they were going to totally fall, fall apart, while the idea of Dr. Barlogi and subsequently of us was that if you uh, uh, give intensive treatments and you can get the disease under good control, that the patients would feel a lot better, that uh, the fact that the patients were brittle was not due to their underlying age, but was basically due to the underlying disease. And if you control the disease, patients will do a lot better. And that turned out to be correct. So that was a disruptive uh, type of uh, innovation. And I think we now need to take the next step, and I hope that lies in the in the myeloma stem cells. That's why we are focusing so heavily on it. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree. And I, I, think, um, I think disruptive innovation in the medical field is tough. It's, it's easier in the technology field. But in um, medicine, it's a real challenge because it's it's a kind of a risk averse environment in a lot of ways. Well, so, it's a very litigious environment, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and so a lot of hospitals have and a lot of academic centers they try to minimize any type of potential legal risk, and they are very careful. And if you introduce a new treatment and you are unlucky and the first two patients are not doing well, you have a very high likelihood that uh, your trial will be stopped and that you cannot continue with the trial, although if you would have done it, it could have revolutionized the field. You have to remember that if you give new treatments, that it also takes a little time to adjust to the new treatments and to know how to best give them and how to uh, to give it in a safe way. You usually cannot do that with the first or the second patient, but after you have treated 20, 30 patients, you have a much better feel for how to do this safely. But unfortunately, since most people try to not to take any risk and try mm-hmm. to protect the institution, it becomes difficult to do disruptive innovations in uh, medicine. But again... The disruptive innovations are the ones that are really moving the field forward, not the marginal increments. Mm-hmm. I agree. I I um, saw Dr. Robert Kyle and I said, how did these um, innovations happen in myeloma? And he said, well, mostly serendipity. <laughs> so that's, that's a challenge when I think that's happened a lot in medicine. Um, I don't that sometimes. Sometimes they're accidental. Sometimes they're not. But there are things that have been uh, accidental. Uh, the the way thalidomide uh, was discovered in myeloma has been largely been accidental. But mm-hmm. the way that plantation was introduced, uh, 
in uh, myeloma was not accidental, was hard thinking and disruptive innovation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more of the therapy for the stem cells. So how did, how did that originate? Well, um, the way we got to that is by we did gene arrays in the very beginning and then before the first transplant, before the second transplant, and after the second transplant. And in the beginning, we had a certain gene array pattern, but we didn't think that that was that important because we can get 85% of our patients in complete remission. And when a patient goes into complete remission, that means that you have eradicated 99.9% of all the myeloma cells. That means that the large bulk of the myeloma cells are sensitive to the chemotherapy. But we still see patients relapsing, so that means that we have left behind a more resistant clone. And we were thinking of how can you get to those cells? What are the features of those cells? And how can we learn from those cells? And we did that by letting nature do its work. We gave the chemotherapy and all the sensitive cells disappear and you're left with less sensitive cells. And then you Mm -hmm. give your next therapy and now you have even less sensitive cells. And ultimately, you get to the very resistant cells and then you want to see in many, many different patients what is common in all those very resistant cells. And when we looked at that, the pattern that we saw was that that was typically described in uh, cancer stem cells. And that's how we got to it. Hmm. Okay, that's great. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I would like to open it up for caller questions for a few minutes. So for those of you who'd like to ask a question about medical trials or Dr. Trico's research, um, those are the type of questions we're looking for. So um, I will add a caller who's asking a question. Okay, go ahead. Um, All right, well, uh, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Hi, uh, Dr. Trico. Thanks for for the great uh, insights that you're sharing. Um, My name is Justin, and I'm uh, currently working on a project in pediatrics where we are um, uh, creating a, a shared data network across different pediatric institutions um, for the purpose of um, generating more insights and having a larger, more complete data set on which to do um, research. And um, it, it seems that pediatrics is ahead of the uh, of the curve um, in terms of driving towards a a robust learning health system because there's a more there's more <clears throat> excuse me willingness to collaborate um and i my, i have a my question really is uh what do you what are the barriers that you see um to in the adult populations to researchers and and clinicians uh being more willing to share patient data with each other for the purpose of generating new uh discoveries and also, um, I saw recently that there was a, a, um, a cancer um, American Cancer Organization published um, or announced a pilot, a prototype called CancerLink, uh, which is now uh, trying to create a shared data pool for cancer research. And wondering if that potentially could be a, a step towards a more collaborative environment around research for cancer patients. Um, in terms of sharing data of research, I think that is finally starting to happen. 
and if you, you can find gene expression profiles of thousands of patients with myeloma that you can analyze and try to find out certain things. Unfortunately, when it comes to clinical trials and treating patients in a similar way, that has been much more difficult, and we still are behind where Europe is. In Europe, you see many more large cooperative trials where uh, big institutions uh, collaborate and do the same thing and therefore can finish a trial in a short period of time while it takes us much longer as a single institution or two institutions to have the same number of patients. But again, you need to make sure that you work together with people who have the same mindset and have the same approach to treatment rather than having all types of uh, people uh, collaborating with you who have different mindsets and where you basically have to compromise too much where you think this is not really going to help my patients. Uh, but again, there, is, there should be ways to do a much better job than we are doing at this point in time by uh, similarly minded uh, people and physicians working together to the benefit of the patients. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, we're going to take another question. Okay, go okay. ahead with your question. Thank you. And uh, if, you, if, if you can put your, um, the, it's feeding back. So if you can put it on. Okay. Sorry. Uh, this is Paul. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's better. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm a caregiver. And. Um, one of the most uh, impactful things I heard in the interview was the outcome statistics from your trial at the University of Arkansas. Um, I think if I wrote it down correctly, you had more than 60% of patients living after 10 years. Did I hear that correctly? And if so, oh, why don't yeah. why, oh, why don't that true? Go complete ahead. remission. 60% were still in complete remission after 10 years. And these days we achieve a complete remission in about 85% of our patients. If, if, if that's the case, why isn't this, this data out there more widely published? This seems like one of the best kept secrets in multiple myeloma. Uh, I fully agree with you. 90% of the patients with myeloma are not treated in an adequate way, in my opinion. But we can only put the data out there and people are trying to do the same thing as was done in Arkansas and what we are doing now, but unfortunately they always do it in a way that's not completely the same. If you want to have similar results, you need to do it entirely the same way as was done before, and then you can see whether it's true or not true. It's just like when we did the tandem transplants and people said, oh, that's not any better than a single transplant until... This was repeated by two big uh, groups in Europe and showed that uh, two transplants was indeed better than a single transplant. Where could we go to see this this data published and and have access to this this data? Um, the most recent update on the Arkansas data was published in Leukemia Journal last year. And you should be able to find it there. 
if you have difficulties finding it, send your email address to uh, Jenny, and I will make sure that uh, you get a copy of that paper. All right. Th thank you so much. Okay. Okay, we have another question. And if you'd like to ask a question, you can press 1 on your keypad. <coughs> okay, go ahead. Hi, my name is Abby. And I'm just Hi, interested in asking Hi, a question. Sure, go ahead. Um, so my question, so first it's going to come from a comment. Um, I have a little bit of an interest in the medical space and a medical student, and I've just noticed that it seems that the research structure um, in terms of promotions is a little is a little off in, in incentives to researchers because it basically researchers aren't truly incentivized to go after truly disruptive research um, because, you know, everyone, failure is not uh, the culture around failure when, within medicine and within scientific research is not um, the case, as is not the same as, as the case in sort of like other, other contexts. And so there's this stigma around failure and researchers are afraid of going after things that are disruptive. So I really applaud you, first of all, in, in uh, taking on truly disruptive um, work. And I guess I just wanted to ask along those lines, um, besides stem cell transplants, what are the truly breakthrough therapies that are out there today for treating multiple myeloma? Well, the non-transplant treatments have improved outcome, but you have to remember that even with the best non-transplant treatments, that only 40% of the patients are still alive at five years. If we compare that to what we saw with Total Therapy 3, where the median survival of patients is going to be somewhere around 12 years based on the way the curves are looking at this point in time and was 10 years in the thalidomide arm in total therapy too. Uh, this is still clearly inferior. And the reason, again, why this is inferior in our opinion is because the non-transplant regimens have no way to deal with the myeloma stem cells. The only way that you can deal with myeloma stem cells is by doing transplantation at this point in time. But that doesn't mean that in the future, if we find ways to deal with the myeloma stem cells and we can first get the patients in complete remission with non-transplant modalities and then introduce the myeloma stem cell therapy, that we will not be able to cure patients without transplantation. But at this point in time, that doesn't exist. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, Dr. Trico, we are so grateful that you were able to join us today. You're so welcome. we we appreciate your time and your responses. And um Dr. Trico is included on our doctor directory on the mpatient.org website. If you would like to contact him, um you can send an email through that doctor directory listing and it will be sent to his department, and he can respond to you in that way. So thank you so very much, and we're very grateful for you. You're welcome. I enjoyed okay. it. All right. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, take care.